is an interview with Professor Mary Yule Beam. She's from the Department of Management, Entrepreneurship and Leadership at TCU in Fort Worth in Texas. And this interview was recorded in April 2018. Hello, I'm David Wilkinson. I'm the editor of the Oxford Review. And today what we're going to be doing is talking about a paper that herself and a colleague published called Leadership for Organisational Adaptability. Now, before we get on to the interview, there are a few key concepts that you need to understand to make sense of the paper. Um, There's a, a research briefing about this that members have got. So the core idea that this paper's really kind of looking at is the idea of organisational ambidexterity. Now, what this means is organisations are actually trying to do two primary sets of activities. Firstly, they're trying to innovate, and that's innovate in the space of products, but also innovate in terms of uh, business models, uh, ways of working, processes, systems, you know, organisations are continually changing and part of that change is uh, innovative in nature. And the other side of this is exploitation or exploiting. So innovation requires creativity, testing and experimentation, which are considered to be kind of classical entrepreneurial activities. And exploitation requires systems, procedures and particularly stability. And that's not least for ensuring quality. And there's a tension between these two things. Now, there's a number of previous studies that's been looking at organisational ambidexterity, and they've found that it's best if different people are involved in these two different processes. Now, what that necessarily means is within the organisation, there's a tension that starts to be created between the innovative side of the organisation and the exploitative side of the organisation and the activities involved in those two things. And this leads to a kind of core question really for leaders and managers and that is, how do you manage this process? How do you create organisational ambidexterity so that it's good at both things at the same time? And, and it's, a re- it's a really core question for just about any organisation anyway. And what um, Mary and her colleague Adrian did um, is that they've been doing quite a lot of work in this space about organisational ambidexterity and they had a, a, a few realisations. So the first realisation is really around the types of leadership that are required for each of these activities. So... On the one side, on the innovative side, you need somebody who's uh, entrepreneurial, so you need entrepreneurial leadership. On the exploitative side, you need what we call operational leadership, so the ability to actually do the day-to-day running of the organisation, make sure that the products or services are going out and the required quality, and that we're making sales or we're delivering whatever the service is. Now, the thing that they've added is this, this idea of enabling leadership. And you'll hear us talking in the interview about this this core concept of enabling leadership. So that's the first new thing to come out of this, this paper, this idea that actually there are three types of leadership that are really involved in organisational ambidexterity. The second thing that really came out of it is the idea of an adaptive space. And that's 
quite crucial and we'll talk a little bit well we'll talk quite a bit in the interview about what an adaptive space is and that the role of the enabling leader is to create and hold an adaptive space which is really about dealing with the tensions between entrepreneurial side of the organization and the operational side of the organization and lastly the 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 the, the last big idea to come out of the paper are that there are two processes that help in the adaptive space. And those processes are labelled as conflicting and connecting. And you'll hear Mary and myself talking about those two processes, conflicting and connecting. Now, before we go to the interview, um, I'd just like you to introduce you to Mojo. Um, Mojo's my, um, my daughter who's uh, home from university at the moment, uh, her dog. Uh, there's a point during the interview at which Mojo wakes up and suddenly realises that he's shut into another part of the house. I actually recorded this video, um, this interview at home. Uh, so towards the end of the interview, uh, there's quite a lot of barking, uh, which I apologise for. Anyway, let's get on with the interview. Hello again, and um, today I'd like to um, introduce uh, Professor, or uh, we're talking to Professor Mary Yulbian, and she's Professor of Management in the Department of Management, Entrepreneurship and Leadership at TCU in Fort Worth in Texas. So welcome, Mary. Um, Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And what we're interested in is this paper, which is um, I I came across recently, which is about leadership for organizational adaptability. A theoretical synthesis, synthesis, and integrative framework. So, Mary, can you just just to kind of give us a bit of background? Can you just take a couple of minutes to introduce yourselves, give the listeners a little bit of background about your personal journey so far and your academic history about how you got here in terms of your research interests? Sure. So, I'm the BNSF Railway Endowed Professor of Leadership at TCU here in Fort Worth, Texas. I've been here for four years, and prior to that, I was in Nebraska. Prior to Nebraska, I was in Florida, and then prior to that, I was in Alaska. Wow. And we grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. So from all the moves, my husband and I realized that we must be high on sensation seeking. (laughs) 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 You learn about yourself by seeing what you do. And we we went from Cincinnati to Alaska, which was about as far as you could go in the country. And then we went from Alaska to Florida, which was, again, about as extreme as you could go. We then went back up a bit and now we're down. We decided we like the south and the warm. So we live here with our, our youngest son and our Siberian dog, which, <laughs> poor thing, she, she's supposed to be in the north and she's down here in the heat. And then my two older children, we left one behind in Nebraska, so he just graduated college there. And my daughter's actually in England, over oh. with all of you. So she's living in London right now. She graduated with her master's from Oxford last year. Oh, really? In, in what? What was she doing? Uh, she did it in evolutionary biology, which is a field in anthropology. Yeah, okay. She's working now with a company in London. They're doing data automation. Oh, fantastic. Oh, great. Yeah. I hope she enjoyed herself at Oxford. I'm sure she did. She loved it. You know, I think she got into it because of Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> That's fantastic. Apparently Harry Potter is based on it. I wasn't aware of that, but she told me. Yeah, a lot of the scenes are, were shot in the colleges here. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Oxford's a weird kind of place. I came here to do a master's and never left. 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's just become a, a kind of a life life choice. But. I can see that. It's a wonderful place. Yeah. Have you been? I have, yeah. Okay. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I love it. Anyway, great. So, oh, that's fantastic. Um, can you just give us a, a, a quick overview about how you ended up doing this particular paper, the research that went behind it, um, and include any kind of previous research that you've been involved in that this was actually built on? Sure. So I started my, I was, I was not planning to do a PhD. I was recruited into the PhD program by George Grain, who studied leader member exchange theory. He was the, the father of that theory. Mm. And I was in his undergraduate class, and I guess I was really obnoxious. I kept asking him a lot of questions and, and challenging with him and engaging with him. So he told me I had to come into the PhD program. And it was a time when we were there was a recession in the U.S. and the job market wasn't very good. So I came into the field that way, and I worked with him on Leader Member Exchange. And I always wondered why my view of leadership was a little bit different from the other scholars I've seen in leadership. I knew there was something different, but I couldn't figure out what it was. And I realized it's because I was trained in this model of Leader Member Exchange. And so I always saw leadership as a relationship. And in that relationship with George, he was the mentor, and I was the protege. But our, our relationship was very much one of doing this. He brought me in because I would challenge him. So I would sit on his couch in his office for hours on end as we would just go at it. Yeah. And from all of that, we generated really creative work. Yeah. So I, that's how I view leadership. I was, he, told, he trained me in the definition of that leadership is a relationship. Yes. So we studied leader member exchange, and I then started getting into exec ed. In working with practitioners, I was hired on as a consultant, and in doing that, I started to realize, I, I tried to consult and say, well, you need to build these relationships, and the leaders I was working with pointed out to me pretty quickly, that's not really my job, and so then I started to see the limitations of the theory that I was doing, and I really wanted to have a theory, work, spend time in research doing, um, developing a theory that had rigor and relevance, so... That, all of that set me up that I was looking for something different, something bigger and broader. And I was introduced to Russ Marion, who was doing research in complexity. And from that, we started doing complexity leadership. And we wrote our first paper in 2001. We continued that work. And so then in 2007, we, we got the theory hammered out. We started working on the empirical work. And this paper is the follow-up to all of that. Ah, got you. Now I understand the the, the background of how, yeah. how you got to where where it was. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's a, a fascinating um, paper, and it kind of pulls together a lot of thinking um, that uh, hasn't been pulled together in this way. And and certainly, the the the, the whole area behind um, exploitation and exploration. Um, whilst there's been a lot of work done on that, actually pulling it together and working out how that works within an organisation. Um, particularly drew me to this. Um, I suppose there's there's a few things that, um, from my point of view anyway, I found that um, that is really new in the paper. Uh, three main areas. Um, uh, the first one is the relabeling of three types of leadership required for developing adaptive capability in an organization. That's entrepreneurial leadership, enabling leadership, and operational leadership. Do you just want to spend a couple of minutes talking across those three and, and what you mean by them? 
Sure, and I was thrilled when you were writing me your overview that you actually got the gist of the paper. I thought, God, he really gets it. So when you were describing it and pulling out the pieces that really matter. Um, to tell you how we got here, what happened was we had our 2007 paper when we wrote the theory, and we spent six years really deep trying to figure that out. It was not, not easy, and we had a lot of pushback doing a lot of presentations to practitioners. So then we started collecting data, and we went out and we did a lot of qualitative work. Um, we did some interventions. We did field studies. And as that work was unfolding, we kept getting calls from practice to come into their companies. So usually in research, what you do is you do a study and you publish it. Mm. Well, what was happening was this was going so quickly that we said, we're discovering so much, we don't want to just publish what we're doing, and we didn't want to stop and slow down. Yeah. So Michael Arena, who's my co-author, he was in practice. He got an opportunity to go to General Motors as their chief talent officer. He said, Mary, this is our living laboratory. We're going to see if we can make the theory in the 2007 paper work. And we had a lot of learning. So. You know, if you armchair theorize, it's one thing. When you try to do it in the real world, it's quite different. So it took a year or two of Michael working it and then me interviewing him. So we were doing this study all along the way before we really started to have the ahas to say, now we've got it. And so Michael and I worked really hard to refine a model. We'd present it to practice, and we got it to the point where it was tight and solid. So now the challenge was, okay, how do we get it into academic research? And that was what I did with this paper, is we had so much, it's a massive framework, you can't put it down into one study, and had to figure out how we could get um, academics to understand this and ground this in theory. So this is all set up to tell you about the leadership styles. So what I realized in doing all of this is people were not resonating with the complexity idea. It was just too hard. People weren't going to go learn complexity theory, and while that's an incredibly rigorous grounding and theoretical framework for this, um, I really at the core of the model is about adaptability. So then I started looking for leadership for organizational adaptability and realized that it was being covered in all of these different areas. So I proposed this review piece. Well, I had no idea what we were going to find when we did the review. So we had all of our understanding from practice, no idea what we were going to find in the literature. But when we started looking and we found these different areas that were talking about it, what was so shocking was it all came together. People were finding the pieces of what we had found in our overall framework. And we were pulling from a lot of qual work because the qualitative work is what um, many of these, these approaches use or different kinds of approaches from just the survey work. So when we saw it, we pulled all of the different pieces and it went into a nice neat framework that we had developed from practice. Mm -hmm. And in that framework, what we did was we took the initial, initial leadership styles that we knew about in the 2007 paper and then just updated them. So if you look at the 2007 paper, the theory paper, we talked about it as adaptive and administrative. Mm -hmm. And then we had enabling in the middle and what we discovered was we had the adaptive wrong. We were thinking adaptive was bottom up. Really, it's more the middle piece. There was a whole long story about how we figured that out. Um, but then when we look at the literature, it became so clear. So figure one in this paper really shows it. Across all of these different areas, this is, this is a very robust, resound finding that yep. you have the two sides, but the adaptability lies in the middle. Yep. But nobody gets that. Mm -hmm. They don't really understand it. And it's like they're, they're touching the different parts of the elephant. Yep. So what we did with this paper was pull it all together.
Yeah. You've got entrepreneurial, you've got operational, which was the administrative piece, mm. and then you have enabling. And with the entrepreneurial, what you're doing is you're pushing, that's that exploration. You're looking mm. for innovation, learning, and growth. With the operational, you're pushing for results. So that's the administrative piece where organizations have managers who drive for results or operational leaders who do that. And then the enabling piece is the middle piece that's about mm -hmm. adaptability. And what that does is work to enable adaptive space. Yeah, brilliant. And actually that, the, the, the figure one diagram, can I just have your permission to reproduce this so, to, so I can send it to my members? Yeah, okay. Sure. The, 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 is a really- I might need to ask Elsevier, but Oh, right okay. now they're offering it free online, so I think you okay. have permission, yes, probably. <laughs> I think you've got the copyright, actually, because it's yours. That's usually what happens. No, they, they keep it. Oh, but... do they? All oh, right. They're... Yes. Anyway, I won't go. <laughs> yes. <Oops. laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> yeah, choose your... Uh... Uh, choose your publications wisely. Okay, that's great. Uh, the, the second idea that really comes out of this is is the idea of leaders creating and holding an adaptive space. Yeah. And and for me, that was kind of the really big idea in all of this. So can you just explain what you actually mean by that? Sure. So what we found in our research, and you can see this in an article that I wrote for Organizational Dynamics that was that came out last year, and that was uh, geared toward practitioners. The major finding we had in our work was that the world is more complex. In a more complex world, what that means is that the world is, has rich interconnectivity. So in this interconnectivity that we have, increased interconnectivity, rich means that when things come together and they interact, they fundamentally change each other. They create phase transitions, which leads to unpredictability, and it leads to dynamism and speed and all of these kinds of things. Well, in that world, you need to have complexity to respond to complexity. But the problem is that organizations drive to order. So our organizational systems are designed to go to order, which is a more bureaucratic or structured or standardized response. Yep. So organizations that live in complexity and that are, are highly adaptive and innovative, what they do is they don't go to order, they go to a complexity response and they do that by using adaptive space. Yeah. So adaptive space is conditions that allow for adaptability to occur in a system. They're not part of our natural organizations. Mm. So nowhere in an organization design, structured chart, um, in a bureaucratic organizing system is this adaptive space. So what you need to do as a, a leader in organizations is you need to work to create that adaptive space. Now the nice thing is what complexity does is it naturally opens that up. So when complexity happens, it creates these conditions in organizations where they have to adapt. Yep. But the problem is what, what, what managers do and what employees want is managers to do is they close that back down yeah. so when they're being disrupted or it's uncomfortable or they have tension or these complexity pressures what they do is they take care of it they fix it they problem-solve oh good we got that one that fires put out <laughs> we fixed it it's now going away and we can go back to our happy lives yeah. that's the order response yeah, so they, yeah. you really need to be able to um, play in that adaptive space and to keep it open and use it appropriately. Yeah, and I think part of that's um, about creating the space for people to be able to 
to, to look for emergent properties. And quite often in organisations, there isn't the time. And holding that adaptive space, allowing for noticing those things rather than creating, as you say, order, rather than actually creating certainty, allowing the uncertainty be and looking at the uncertainty and looking for patterns in that uncertainty. And that's part of the work that I've been doing. And that's one of the reasons why I connected so much with the paper, I think. Yeah, it's really interesting. And uh, have you got um, examples of organisations that are actually holding an adaptive space? So we have actually, yes, we, we started with the companies that were coming to us that said, we need help with this. And we have a whole bunch of those. And what we began to realize was, okay, we've studied this, but most of these are more bureaucratic. They're struggling with the adaptive space. So we need to go out and see if we study highly innovative and adaptive organizations if they have it. Yeah. So we did a second follow-up study, validation study, after we developed our model with these highly innovative adaptive, and yes, this is what they do. Yeah. So um, we were doing things like looking at, at Facebook, which actually has been in the news this week, <laughs> Facebook and Google and you know a lot of the, the high-tech companies. Yeah. We have another organization, WL Gore, um, which does Gore-Tex. And they were one of the early ones that were really talking with us, uh, Deborah France from W.L. Gore, who said, this is what we do at Gore that keeps us so innovative and allows us to have this different model. Um, Michael then started doing it at General Motors. Mm. So he's had really good success in, in developing adaptive space and really has developed expertise. And the thought was, if we can do it in General Motors, we can probably do it just about <laughs> anywhere. So. Yeah, so I think fantastic. I feel pretty confident that this this is what organizations that are adept in this world, this is what they're doing. Yeah, okay. And uh, the, the, and there's two kind of, the, the ideas of kind of conflicting and connecting kind of come out of the paper and writ large. Can you just explain what you mean by those and how they kind of affect practitioners? Sure. Conflicting is the idea that you have heterogeneous worldviews, so you have different perspectives. When complexity happens, what's happening is that it's it creates pressures in the system. So it creates an adaptive challenge, meaning that you have to do something different. It creates conflicting perspectives, and or new partnerships. The second one is new partnerships. So adaptive challenge, new partnerships. In new partnerships, people have to come together and work together who haven't done so before. And that, that happens all over the place. Well, when those people come together, they have diverse backgrounds, so they have different needs, and they have different worldviews and different perspectives, different training, background, and so that creates this conflict in that relationship, and what often happens is people shut that down, so they try to get rid of the conflict, and what we know from complexity is that a core element of complex adaptive systems is tension and what I was calling the tension dynamic for many years. And so we decided to use the word conflicting to get people to understand that what you need to do in organizations is engage that conflicting. And there's a way to do that. There are processes for it. Um, people who are good at complexity know how to do this, bring the different ideas together, and that's what adaptive space does, is it brings these differences together in the right conditions to engage them, and you want that creative tension, that adaptive tension. So you plan the tension, but the other piece of it is conflicting is only good if you have connecting. Mm. So out of that conflicting, out of that diversity, when you have the, the heads budding, if you will, something sparks. 
Yeah. And it's usually something that you haven't thought of before. That's where the creative creativity comes from. That's why they call it creative abrasion. And so you have to get really good at understanding to watch for those sparks yep. and look for the areas where the connections can occur. Now that's in the creative process of adaptive space. But the really fascinating thing about this is in, complex, in complexity we talk about these as fractals. And fractal means that it scales, it looks the same as it scales across the system. So this dynamic could occur between you and me, which is what I described George and I did doing yeah. when I was sitting on the couch, that was my training. Um, Russ and I did it as we, as we developed this work together. So this is a core part of everything that went into this work, but that also occurs in the organization. So if we scale it up and think about it at a different level, when people have a new idea, let's take an entrepreneurial leader, who has a new idea, that person starts to develop that new idea, that's socializing it in the local environment. And then the person, after they refine it a bit and decide it's got some legs, they decide, or a group decides, they're going to take it out into the organization and try to scale it to make it bigger. Well, what happens is when they take it out and they go bigger, it hits up against the other parts of the system. Yep. So that's conflicting. Now. For many people, they perceive that as hitting a brick wall. Yes. So they say, I've hit the brick wall, this is done, this idea is dead, and they quit. Yep. And what we're telling people is, no, this is the conflicting process. You need to change your mindset about that. You need to understand that that is, that is a conflicting process. You need to take that information back, iterate your idea, but figure out how you can get through that conflicting. And that conflicting goes all across the levels. It happens over and over again. Yep. So you're trying to get through the conflicting to do what we call linking up or yes. connecting. So you then find a way, okay, okay, David, I've just given you this idea. You say, no, it's not going to work. I take it back. I refine it. Now I come back to you again and I continue that or I find a workaround mm -hmm. until I can get a way to link up with you. And now we're linked up and you say, okay, this will work. And then you continue to do that process. So it's an ongoing, and they're, they're really not separable. They're very, they, they work together as a dynamic, and it's a fractal dynamic. Pretty it, cool, huh? Oh, it is. It's actually, I'm, like, I'm getting excited here because it, it fits in with some of the work that I was doing in, in the early 2000s. Um, when we were looking at, so my area um, is to do with uncertainty and leadership and how leaders cope or don't cope or don't deal with uncertainty largely. And one of the leadership modes that kind of came out of that research was what we call mode four or generative leadership. And generative leaders have this ability to be able to hold the conflict and look for the patterns and, and look for the things within the conflict that are enablers and learn from it. And they're, they're kind of inveterate learners rather than, and, and, and part of this is, and, and this is why I link emotion regulation so closely to um, generative leadership, is they don't run away because of the conflict. They move into it to see what they can learn from it. Um, and they don't start forcing things on people. What they're trying to do, and it goes back to the whole thing about emergent property, is they're trying to find out what's going on here and, and trying to work out what, what the world view is and learn from different perspectives. So they become kind of collective of lots of different perspectives and diversity and, and not diversity in sense of kind of just skin color, but in the way that people think and see things because that enables them to start to work out what's actually going on with the conflict. 
and it, it just dovetails so beautifully into some of the work that we've been you know I've been doing for years so That's which exactly is why it. I got you so excited described it perfectly <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have to meet yeah <laughs> yeah when you when you're in oxford next in fact I, I will be coming to the states a bit later but um anyway we'll, we'll talk yeah. about that afterwards <laughs> um so from practitioners kind of perspective because this whole thing's really for practitioners is what should they really be taking away from from your work and and from this whole idea about adaptive spaces and the three types of of, of leadership that you've come down to so the most important thing is to understand that the natural reaction in organizations and in systems is to go to the order response, to drive to results, to problem solve. And this is a huge problem for managers and for leaders because this is what we've trained them to do. So the problem with leadership is we've told leaders, yes, you're problem solvers, you're decision makers. Here's what you need to do. Um, build good relationships with your employees, which means make, make them feel good. And quite often, this is not a process that makes people feel good. Yes. You know, People who are not comfortable with ambiguity or uncertainty, they've experienced this as extreme stress. Yeah. And so what managers do is try to make people feel better and take that stress away, fix yeah. the problem. That's one of the worst things you can do in this situation. So. We have to be very, very careful that we understand that the role of leadership today in the conditions of complexity, and there's so much more of it, is to enable this adaptive space, um, enable the conflicting and connecting in that process, and that it looks very, very different from normal leadership. So we actually need to change our competency models. We need to change our recognition and reward systems because leaders who do this, they don't look like what we've described as leaders or defined as leaders. And we're now in this current stage, we've got a practice group we're working with. We've got some really carefully hand-selected leaders we're, tra- we're tracking, because Michael already did it. We tracked him. Now we're tracking other leaders to see how they're doing. Yes. And they're not always recognized as mm-hmm. leaders. They're, they can be flying under the radar or it can look like invisible leadership. Yeah. And the other challenge is they need a lot of coaching and support because this is not an easy process to work through. And now we know some of those nuances of what's happening, so we need to get more information out to these leaders to say, here's what's gonna happen, here are different stages of this, here's some warning signals, etc." Yeah, yeah, okay, that's so don't push. Ju- excuse me, don't push just for results. I think that we've gotta get organizations off this short-term term push for results, yeah. focusing on, yes, results is current, but we need adaptability. To have adaptability, you need this entrepreneurial or innovation and the operational engaging in the tension to generate adaptability. So you need results and adaptability. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's beautiful. And actually, one one of the ways that, just as you're talking, you kind of made me realize is that you know we put leaders in organizations, and that's what they do. They organize. Unfortunately, what happens is they organize the living life out of complexity rather than holding the space to learn about the complexity um, okay. they end up kind of getting rid of it and not learning which is you know one of the big problems yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll send you some stuff actually after the after the interview that great. you might be interested in Love, yeah. <laughs> brilliant um, okay so um, what's next for you in terms of research what are you working on that you can tell us about right now and um, yeah where next 
So on the practice side, we've really we have so much interest from practice. Um, I have never had more practitioners <laughs> contacting me, and so we've been prioritizing them. And I'm working to get a companion piece out to the Org Dynamics article that I published last year with Michael and explain more about how you do this adaptive space because in that one we gave the overview. In this next one we need to show more about how you do it. And then on the research side we now have the new model, the revised model out, which we're thrilled about and I'm so mm. excited that you saw the paper and liked it. Thank you for that. I love it. And <laughs> And so the next step there is I want to write a piece on the tension dynamic yeah. because really the core of this, the, on the academic side, the core of this is this tension dynamic and people just don't understand it. So it's going to be similar to what I did with this other piece where I look all over in the liter literature because when I was doing the first review I could see that there are insights mm -hmm. there. So I'm going to call all of those findings, and I'll write that one up in terms of explaining more about adaptive space and the tension dynamic is the core of that. Brilliant, uh, excellent. I'll, I'll I'll send you some references actually because I've been doing quite a lot of work around this area. So there's some there's some really interesting stuff. Uh, that's fantastic. Um, that's that's brilliant. Is is there anything else um, that that you're working on in research terms? Sorry, that's my dog. That's, that was worry about doing this from home. <laughs> <laughs> I know, yes. I didn't realize you could get through to that. <laughs> yes. Um, in research terms, I think, again, we're going to do the tension dynamic, the adaptive space, um, and then we have lots and lots of studies. So once we get the big picture out, then we're going to pr start providing more of those studies that I was describing, we'll go back and write those up. The challenge for us on the research side is that getting the world of academics to understand it. It just, it doesn't fit into the nice, nice, neat, nice neat little box. And so you had asked me in the original um, framing about what practitioners should know about evidence-based. Yes. And what I would say is that um, be careful thinking that it's evidence, that what's being pulled from our liter literature is evidence. That again is some language that we use as academics, and I, there's a group of who are pushing it. And I agree with where they're trying to go. I just don't know if I agree with the evidence piece, because the idea that we have evidence using the methods that we use to me is questionable. A lot of those studies are perceptual. Yeah. So the reason that I left the LMS work because it was a seven-item measure of a perception of a relationship. Mm -hmm. And we would draw all of these conclusions that went way beyond the data. Mm -hmm. And I got really uncomfortable with it. Yeah. And I knew that there was much nuance to it. Mm -hmm. So I would say just take, there, there definitely are key findings or principles we know. There's mm -hmm. no question. It's all basic principles that we've known from eons of research yes. and just from our theory. So that's really good stuff. Just be careful about the idea that one study can be so informative. Oh, yeah. Look at the methods to see what's going on in those studies. And then understand that there's not a magic toolbox. Mm. You have to do the hard work of learning this stuff. And somebody's not going to come in and say, yeah, this study shows this, and I'm going to go implement this. Yes. That's really just not how it works. 
yeah, yeah. There's a whole series of things there, and it's in fact I've just been um, writing some stuff on this about the kind of four areas for evidence-based practice that includes obviously academic research, but it also includes the practitioner's experience, you know, feedback from the organisation, feedback from customers and clients, and these kind of four things that come into evidence-based practice. It isn't just the academic, and, and one of the things that um, actually drew me to the, the your paper was the fact that it's grounded, it's actually based on, you know, it's based on things in organisations as opposed to a theoretical base first. Um, exactly, and that's what we did with our research. Mm. People were saying to me after I wrote the 2007 paper, you need to write a book, and I said, no, I need to go see how this works in yes. the world. And <laughs> yeah. yet, as I said to you, the reason we have not published a lot of papers is the academic mm. world doesn't have a forum for getting that work out because yep. it doesn't fit our typical research methods. Yep. So what we did is a combination of things and I think that that's really what we need to do in research. We worked yes. with so many practitioners, they were partners in this all the way yeah. through and yet we still had this, the very solid theoretical grounding. So I like rigor and relevance, mm. rigor and the theoretical side, relevance to practice. Yeah, that's right. Or impact. You could talk about impact. I think I like that better than this idea of evidence. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, that's 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 fantastic. And it's, it's one of the reasons for the Oxford Review, actually, because that gap between academic and practitioner is usually huge. And um, we're trying to kind of close that. And this paper does it beautifully. And that's what happened here is that Michael is a practitioner. He's got a PhD yeah. in practice and he's my partner in this work. We kind of we had our research team, but then Michael and I went off to try to do this work. So yes. that's what you see in it. That's fantastic. Mary, thank you very much for spending the time with us. Um, I'll be in contact anyway. I've got some things to send you. And um, yeah, just thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. It's been really wonderful. That's great. You take care. Okay, and uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Anytime you're in.